Some of you know that uh, this past Tuesday through Thursday, we held a winter retreat at Paradise Lake for our, our junior high and high school students. We had a, a great time up there, and in coming back, uh, I got a call from Bob Kobe, and he wanted to stop by and, and drop off a gift from you all. And uh, later that afternoon, he stopped by, and, and we were once again blown away by how generous and loving you all are. And I want to, on behalf of Angela and the kids, express our thankfulness for you and our thankfulness for the gift that you gave us. But I don't want to stop there. I'm going to go off script for just a minute because I want to tell you about the role that you have played in our lives. And you have given us a gift that that goes far beyond any monetary or any object that you could ever buy for us. You see, when we moved up here, we brought a ton of baggage with us. Uh, we so much we didn't even realize that we were bringing. We had been in a a difficult situation at a church down in North Carolina, uh, compounded by my own deficiencies as a, as a pastor as well. It certainly wasn't a one-sided thing as, as usually is the case when there is conflict. There usually uh, there's enough blame to go around. But uh, I think uh, my immaturity added to a, a situation that was going on down there. And, and when Angela and I moved up, we, we both felt beat up. We knew that we were tired and, and knew that I would have a little bit of problem connecting with the people here. But in looking back, I didn't recognize the extent of of which I was affected by the the circumstances down there. Um, It really took a good two years before I realized how good we got it in being brought here to to serve with you all. Um, You have been patient and gracious and kind. And your love that you have shown for our family has given us a, an appreciation for the passages we read in Scripture that deal with the church. We, we feel like we, we have a point of reference now to, to point to as, as to what makes a, a healthy, loving church. Now, you all would be the first to admit that, that none of us are perfect And we all want to grow in these areas, but you have been used by God in our lives to help us grow. And I want to thank you. I thank you on behalf of Angela. I thank you on behalf of Isaac and Lydia and Caleb. Thank you for your love. Thank you for being used of God in our lives for our good and our growth. I hate to think of where we would be were it not for you. And I praise God for you. Now down to business. Our scripture reading this morning, or the passage that we're going to be looking at for the sermon, is, is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11.
And if somebody could keep an eye on the clock back there, I'm not sure if I can read it from here. Um, I'll need to ask Joel when he's back on Tuesday if that was for my benefit. Because surely his eyes aren't failing. So. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does." The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as to one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank You for this Word. Thank You for this powerful truth that You have set forth that we can read and that we can know and that we can apply to our lives. Lord, You are so good to us. You are so gracious. And we thank You, Lord, for Your love. As we are are gathered under this Word this morning, Lord, I pray that You would give us sensitivity to Your Spirit, Lord. May we not get defensive, Lord, where You want to convict us. And Lord, where we should be encouraged, Lord, I pray that joy would spring forth as we recognize this truth that applies to our lives. Lord, may we not be satisfied to live this life just going through the motions, but would You give us a holy hunger for more of You? That we would love You more than we love football. That we would love You more than we love our reputations. Lord, that we would love You more than we love money and pleasure and triviality 
that You would be the treasure of our lives. Lord, we come before You and we ask You to work among us. Lord, You know I need Your help. And so I come and I ask, Lord, boldly for the sake of Christ, help me to speak the truth clearly. Be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Someone were to come up and ask you today, when you leave here, maybe you're going to, out to lunch or maybe a neighbor comes by, hey, you know, I noticed you were gone for the last couple of hours today and you came home and you looked kind of nice. I really want to know, what makes you a Christian? How would you answer that question? When I thought of that question, when it came to mind, a couple of instances from my life came up, came to mind. The first one was, was relatively recently. It was a conversation that I, I had with a couple who are not part of this church, who were offended at the thought that, that perhaps I thought they may not be believers. And, and in the course of the conversation, they said, oh, well, we're Christians, we, we go to church, we even tithe. Well, those are two good things you want to do. But that's not a complete answer. The other example that came to mind was, was a conversation I had with, with someone that I went to high school with and was in Boy Scouts with and, and worked at a TV station with. We had known each other for a good chunk of time in our lives. And uh, when we moved to North Carolina to, to serve there, he wanted me to perform his wedding. And so I went out to lunch with he and his fiancée and we were, were talking about things and Ask him about his faith, what he believes. Well, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. And he started listing off all the, the good deeds that, that he does. But never got to Christ. Now I would hope if, if, if someone asked that question to, to you all, that, that you would give the right answer. What makes you a Christian? Christ does. His, his life and His death on the cross for my sins, the, the resurrection as, as proof that God was satisfied with His sacrifice, that when I came to faith in Him, my sins were forgiven, my relationship with God was restored. And I'm a Christian, praise God. It's because of Christ that I'm a Christian. Church attendance, tithing, good deeds are all great if they are an evidence, if they are a result of that foundational relationship with Jesus Christ, but apart from that, they are a waste of time and effort and money even. The book of First Peter, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are facing persecution. And he writes to them to, to challenge them and, and to encourage them in their faith to continue to, to press on in the midst of suffering. And throughout the book of 1 Peter, you find him pointing them back to the example of Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. He suffered. He died. You do the same. The tone of 1 Peter is one that is, is often misunderstood. Sometimes we, we read through a book of the Bible and, and we kind of adopt the same mentality that we have. 
And here in America, we're pretty comfortable, so we can read through a book like First Peter and say, oh, yeah, that's nice, great, uh-huh. Well said, I agree with that. And totally miss out on the fact that, that Peter was giving these people basically marching orders as to how to live and thrive and, and persevere as followers of Christ in a hostile world. This morning in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11, through we're going to be considering two main themes that relate to our union with Christ. First of all, our union with Christ through faith enables us to persevere in this life. And secondly, our union with Christ through faith enables us to function as we should as the body of Christ, which is the church. And may God use His Word for our good and His glory as we consider these truths that will be set before us. First theme, our union with Christ through faith enables us to persevere in this life. That's found in verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read those to you again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. In verse 1, Peter actually points us back to, to chapter 3. He says, Since therefore Christ is suffer, has suffered in the flesh, and he's making reference back to, to chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, where Peter breaks it down a little more. Listen to verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Now, there are a couple of things from this passage that, that could really cause you to, to, to stumble in your faith and have, have led entire de denominations astray, but, but really the explanation for them is, is pretty simple. The, the first thing that jumps out when it talks about Christ, when, it, when He died, going to proclaim to the spirits that were dead. And, and some people have, have, have taken that and they said, hey, okay, well, God gives us a second chance then. Well, when we die, it's not too late. We're going to have another chance to accept Christ. It says so right here, right? Well, no, that's really not what it's saying at all. What is being portrayed there is a picture of Christ victorious. And we don't know if He was 
if it was during the, the point of his time, the three days that he was dead before he rose again, or, or what exactly went on there. But what the picture that Peter is given is one of, of, of Christ the Lord victorious, conquering death and defeating sin once and for all times for those who would have faith in Him. That's the picture that Peter is giving there. Our union is not just with some Savior who died never to rise again, but our union is with Christ Jesus the Lord who has triumphed for all times. The second thing that causes people to stumble in this passage is, is the statement that, that baptism saves you. And, and what Peter is doing there is, is talking about what baptism represents. Why do we get baptized? It's a testimony of what? Of our union with Christ. What He's done for us. You guys know this field. Many of you were, were baptized by Pastor Joel. He says, baptized with him in his death and raised to new life. That's what happens when we come to faith in Christ. And, and what Peter's saying is, is he's, he's emphasizing the importance of baptism in the, as the sense of a testimony, but what it represents is the spiritual reality of what has taken place between us and God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that gives the weight to what he's going to say in chapter 4. Because you are united with Christ, do this. So the therefore matters there. That's what it's there for. We want to look back and, and be reminded by Peter about the power of our union with Christ, how it transforms our identity and sets us free, as we'll see, to walk in newness of life. Christ died to bring us to God and we are united to our victorious Lord through faith. And this is symbolized in baptism. The next phrase there, Peter says, arm yourselves. And in the Greek, this word is, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And what it is, it's a direct picture of a soldier who is getting ready for battle. He, he's grabbing the sword. He's grabbing the armor. He's got his mentality that he is ready to go to battle. Arm yourselves. This picks up on the entire theme of First Peter. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, it talks about to prepare your mind for action. If you have the King James, it says, Gird up, girding up the loins of your mind. Prepare yourselves for action. There's a call here. There's a wartime mentality that is foreign to Christians in America today. And what Peter is saying is, listen, if you are going to live this life, and he's first of all writing to folks who are being persecuted, but he's also writing to us as well, we have to have a different mentality than what we've had up to this point. We have to recognize that we are in a hostile situation and our default mode of, of cruising through life is not going to cut it for us to persevere as followers of Christ. It's not going to enable us, even as a church, to go out and have as an effective a ministry as possible in this lost and dying world unless we adopt this same attitude. Ready for war. Ready for action. Our enemy is not those who are out there who persecute us. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy. Satan who would seek to deceive and would keep others from knowing and understanding the truth. And God is calling us to faithfulness. 
We must not view life through the lens of ease. And our perception of how things are going cannot be based just on how easy things are going for us. Oh, no big struggles today. Things are great between me and God. Our standing with God is based solely on Christ Jesus. And our intimacy with God is is affected by our willingness to trust and obey His Word. Do you see the difference between the two? One starts in faith in a person, Jesus Christ, and what He's done, our standing with God, but our growth in God comes as we respond to God and to His Word. We have influence in that. We can't save ourselves, but we can certainly be a part of what it means to grow spiritually as followers of Christ. It says to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The weapon that we wield in our battle against the flesh is the same attitude that Christ had. I want to ask you something. What was Jesus all about? Even from the time He was a child. What was He here for? You remember the story? Joseph and Mary lost Jesus at the temple. They start heading halfway home. They realize He's not here. They go back for Him. Mary's like, What are you doing? What was His answer? I must be about the will of who? My Father. Start to finish. That's what the life of Christ was about. The will of the Father. Peter says, you know what? Like Jesus, be about the will of the Father. Suffering and trials definitely have a purifying effect on our lives. But lasting growth and sanctification as we, as we face these trials, comes by faith, seeking to honor God and obey by faith in the midst of trials. That, that phrase, ceased from sin, can, can give the impression that, that perfection is attainable in this life. But if you read elsewhere in Scripture, like 1 John and, and numerous other passages, it, it talks about the fact that if we say we have no sin, we are liars. So, so what, could, what, what could Peter be talking about in this case? Well, if you continue to read, he kind of answers that question for us. Scripture is clear that perfection in this life, apart from our position in Christ, is impossible. Because perfection is not just the absence of sin in our lives, but it's also the presence of absolute righteousness. Does this excuse us to do as we please? Are to excuse the presence of sin in our lives? Of course not. What it should do is give us a greater appreciation for Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to us, given to, undeserved. It should also strengthen our desire to continue to follow and obey Christ by faith, giving Him the glory for the success that we find in our spiritual walk. In verse 3, Peter draws a line in the sand for the follower of Christ in regards to how we should live. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Simply put, Peter is saying, you lived enough like an unbeliever when you were an unbeliever. That is no longer who you are. 
Christian, you who are identified with Christ through His life, His death, His resurrection, you who have been set apart from that way of living, don't live like you once were. Peter says, listen, you had plenty of time for that when that was you, when you were an unbeliever. Don't live that way anymore. This is not the life that Christ died to set you free from. Or for. He goes on to give examples. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is by no means a comprehensive list of what life as an unbeliever looks like. What it is, is a sample that related directly to what those what the original audience was experiencing. This is how you used to live. No longer, Christian. No longer. It does fit today, doesn't it? Fits very well with our society today. But we could certainly add to it as well. Peter is calling us to have a radical, wartime, take-no-prisoners attitude when it comes to living by faith and putting to death sin in our bodies. I wonder, friends, do we take this attitude seriously? Is this our way of thinking when we think about the Christian life? When we look and we plan and we, we sit down on January 1st and we look at our lives and we think, oh man, I need to make a bunch of resolutions to make my life better. Is that what comes to mind? I need to know Christ more. I want to die to self and be alive to the power of God so that I can serve Him faithfully. I don't want to waste my life. I want to invest it. I want to spend it. I want to give it for the sake of the Gospel. Is that how we think? Or is it I need to drop 20? Maybe I'll quit smoking this year. I won't watch so much TV. Those are good ideas, but they fall short when you look at things through the lens of Scripture. I recently reconnected with a, with a family that I'd met when I was doing the hospital chaplaincy job down in Columbia, South Carolina. I uh, reconnected with this family back before Thanksgiving, and, and their story really illustrates well what it means to have a, a radical mindset about a situation. This isn't about sin, but it's a, I think it represents well the attitude that we should have as followers of Christ. Uh, students, you've heard me talk about Stephen before. Stephen was a, was a 15-year-old young man who was out hunting one day and he, he dropped his rifle when he was climbing in the tree stand. The, the rifle hit the ground, went off, Bullet goes up through the tree stand, shears the bullet in half, and the bullet goes perfectly in his nostril into his brain. No damage physically whatsoever to his face. He falls out of the tree stand and thinks that he's okay. He's still conscious in all this, thinking clearly. He goes to the hospital just to check him out because he did fall out of a tree stand. And in the course of doing a CAT scan, they find a bullet in his brain. You can imagine, I'm sure, what his parents were going through when they found that. He's still alert. He's still conscious. They, they send him up to the, the children's intensive care unit, which was, was my hangout. That's where I spent a lot of my time. A nurse there didn't get the order not to stimulate him, and, and so she went to give him a bath, and it put him in a coma. And, and during this time, his brain starts to swell. 
And so the doctor had a choice to make, and it was a radical one. He could try to treat the swelling with medicine, which probably wouldn't work, or he could remove half of Stephen's skull, or a third of Stephen's skull, to allow the brain to expand until it was through swelling, and then when the healing process began, remove the bullet and all that stuff. They cut a third of his skull off. That's radical. Because they recognized that's what had to be, do, had to be done to give him a chance of surviving. They never even knew if he would wake up again from this coma, but they knew his only chance at survival was something radical. That is not something you go and do every day at the hospital. That's not something surgeons do every day. But it was his only hope. The good news is, is that Stephen recovered, had his, brain, or his skull put back on, and now is, is a married man with, with children and serving the Lord as an EMT of all things. That's the good news. But friends, let me ask you, is your willingness, your attitude towards following Christ so radical that, that you're willing to take whatever step is necessary to, to, to seek to cut out the sin that's in your life? We do it by God's help. We can't do it alone, that's for sure. But we have to have that same radical mentality. We've got to think that way when it comes to those besetting sins. You know what I'm talking about. The person who escapes the pressure of work and life through fantasy does themselves no good by reading romance novels or watching sappy chick flicks and imagining themselves in the story. The person who avoids responsibility by playing games on the computer to relax is not helping themselves represent Christ well and persevere in life. If shopping or eating is the way you deal with disappointment, then you've got a problem. Sometimes the idol, and that's basically what I'm describing, idolatry, can even be a good thing, but when it's what you run to in order to deal with pressure, it becomes evil, and you must take the radical step of cutting it out of your life. For some people, this means your TV time is going to be severely limited. Some may need to get rid of the Internet or find a way to limit yourself significantly. For some, it's going to be as simple as, as changing your attitude about a certain activity or idea. But Peter calls us to be radi- radical in our steps to cease from sin because, let's face it, we've lived enough like unbelievers when we were unbelievers. No doubt you've heard the story of, of when Billy Graham used to, to travel, his practice, uh, when he would stay at a hotel. He, he would call ahead, and, and there have been other pastors that did this as well, but made sure the, the TV was already removed from the room when he got there. Would not stay near uh, in the hotel a, a female member of his staff that was traveling with him just for the sake of, of not giving that appearance of evil. Radical steps that we would look at and think, what's his problem? He knew. He knew what we would do well to know better and to believe. This life is not a game. 
The Christian life was not meant to be eked by. Perseverance of the saints involves the saints working and living by faith, resisting and believing that God is going to enable us to to overcome in this life. It is not sinless perfection, but it is a growth in godliness. We have seasons of of up and down, but the direction is the same. It's towards Christ's likeness. In verses 4 and 5, Peter reminds us that when we seek to practice righteousness, we are going to offend those who are unrighteous. They are not going to like it. He also reminds us in these verses verses of the reality of God's judgment. And friends, this should motivate us for personal evangelism. We have been spared from it, but many around us are objects of His wrath. And they must know the saving work of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Peter writes, preached even to those who are dead. Or, or, if you have the NIV, it says now dead. And that's actually a better translation. Don't stumble over this. Peter is not speaking of second chances, but he's making reference to the fact that human death is a part of God's universal judgment on the sin of mankind. It started way back in the Garden of Eden. Life on this earth comes to an end, but those who are in Christ live on in the Spirit. Our union with Christ through faith enables us to function as we should as the body of Christ. Verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And and just a reminder, it's Sometimes we read verses like that and we think, wow, Peter wrote that way back then and and Jesus still hadn't returned. What's going on? Well, a lot of times when the Bible talks about the last days, it's it's making reference to the time from from the ascension of Christ to His second coming. So in that sense, we're all in the last days. The The end of all things is at hand. And because of that, we must be self-controlled and and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. This means to have an accurate assessment of life and what God says. This enables us to pray more effectively. To be self-controlled also helps us to to pray with pure hearts. How many times have we gone men and and, and we've we've stumbled in some way and we've sought to, to, to go to God in prayer and we feel like we can't even formulate the words because of the guilt and the weight that is on us from our sin. How many times has that happened and we just can't seem to formulate the words, but God, forgive me for blowing it again. Let me submit to you that you pray with a lot more clarity when you've resisted temptation and you have an accurate understanding of what's going on. Does God still hear our prayers? For the sake of Christ, yes, He does. But if we want to pray more effectively and more biblically for ourselves, for our families, for our friends in the church and those that have yet to come to know the Lord, we need to be clear-headed and accurate about what's going on. We need to understand that God is not always doing His best work when we are living a life of ease. Sometimes the, the, the times of the most significant spiritual growth in our lives comes in the midst of pain and sorrow 
And God is there lovingly pruning away those things that that we care about too much and and drawing us to, to that which will truly satisfy. And that's Himself. How can we face difficulty when our Christianity is so shallow? We can't. We have to be people of God's Word. Not just that we can quote a few verses, but that our lives are built on it. Verses 8 and 9, he he goes on to to talk about the relationships to the attitude that we should have towards one another in the church. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is to be the defining characteristic in the body of Christ. And again, I affirm your lovingness. That's even a word. We have experienced it. We praise God for it. But let's press on in our love for one another. Let's press on in our concern for each other. And brothers accept this and sisters accept this lovingly. I want to get on your toes for a minute because I love you. Love in the church is inconvenient. Love in the church should be messy. Love in the church involves more than just seeing each other at specified services and that being the extent of our involvement in one another's lives. We need one another. We need one another for accountability. We need people to to walk with others through times of grief. We need each other to share one another's joys. We need each other to serve as we should as the body of Christ. And if the bulk of your relationships with those around you don't go deeper than when you see them here, you've got some work to do. You have more in common with the people around you than you do with your unsaved family members. Because the bond of Jesus Christ is the strongest bond that you will ever experience. But that doesn't happen naturally. You've got to open up. You've got to be real. You've got to be there. You cannot be satisfied with the status quo. Now I know it goes on. There's a whole generation of people here that are actively involved in one another's lives. And I say to you, keep going. And there's another generation that that we kind of grew up and, and, and... we're worldly. I come to church to be with church people and I compartmentalize that and then I go to my job and I do my job thing and never the two shall meet. That is not a picture of biblical Christianity. And we have to fight against our desire to, to, and our tendencies to, to hold people at an arm's reach so they won't know us. You can't function as God intends for you to function as the body of Christ if that's your attitude towards the people around you. doesn't always mean we back up the dump truck and, and unleash all our deepest sins and fears on the world, but we develop meaningful relationships where we get to know one another and, and, and can begin to share these things and support one another. You want a resolution? 
Resolve to love these people around you this year. Biblically, be inconvenienced for the cause of Christ. Take part in a ministry that that saps a little bit more of your time. Or or, or when you deliver that food to to the person who is grieving, stop and stay a while. Even if you just sit across from them and say, you know what, I don't have the words to say, but I just want you to know I love you. I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. Just want you to know that I'll be there when you're ready to talk. In your heart, you know I'm right. You know it. Peter goes on in verses 10 and 11 to to talk about our service in the church. And he breaks the gifts up into two broad categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. And, and it's, it's tempting to think, oh, well, I, I've got the, I do a speaking gift. I teach, I, I preach, I have a, a teaching role in the church. Or I'm an encourager, so I don't have to serve. Or, or I serve, so I don't ever really have to say anything. And that's really a bad idea. These things, our roles in one another's lives, they overlap. I mean, sure, there'll be some that that teach and preach more and others that are more involved in serving, but it doesn't mean that that you can't be involved in in both types of serving in the church. I, I love the way Peter breaks this down broadly. You, you, you can't say, well, I've got the gift of administration, so I can't do this. He says, no. You've got some who speak, some who serve, And it boils down to this. Do it all to the glory of God. So if you're going to speak, speak the words of God, the truth of God. Proclaim it boldly and lovingly to the people of God. And if you're going to serve, you serve wholeheartedly. And you bring glory to God by fleshing out the love of Christ in each other's lives. But do it to God's glory. He supplies the strength. He supplies the words. Do it unto Him. I've hinted a little bit about New Year's resolutions. And I was telling somebody in the back that in 10 years of of full-time ministry, I think this is actually the, the fourth time I've actually preached the first sermon of the new year. I don't know what that's all about. But I'm happy to do it because I love to hit on resolutions. Number one, they're not always a bad thing. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school class today that sometimes they show, okay, we know something's not right. We know something needs to change. Now, now how we get there and what we go about doing about it isn't always the best method. Certainly not always the most biblical method. But the very fact that, that some of us, and I won't ask you to raise your hands, although I'm tempted... The, the fact that, that we want to make them shows that we know that things need to change. And so that's a good thing. That's a great thing. And, and it's also a good thing when, when those changes we want to make are, are eternal in value. Say, maybe this year you want to read through the Bible in a year. Maybe you want to be more faithful in prayer. Maybe you want to start an accountability group. That's great! Do that! 
But don't do it so you can check something off your list. If your goal is to read through the Bible in a year or read the Bible every day, read it to know God. If your goal is to start an accountability group or or meet with somebody else for prayer and mutual encouragement, be real. Don't check it off your list. Do it for growth. Do it for change. And understand this. Lasting change. Lasting change. We're not talking about three weeks and then we give up. Lasting change in our lives comes as we see God for who He really is and respond to Him appropriately. And lasting change, my friends, takes time. Do not lose heart. If... If, if you hear me saying these things, and oh, I agree, I agree, but I just keep failing. Do not give up. But Sam, you don't understand. Anger is such an issue with me. I just I find myself blowing it time and again with my kids and my spouse. And me too. Me too. But keep going. It takes time. Look in His Word. Believe His promises. Celebrate the successes. Seek forgiveness in the failures, but recognize that God is at work in you. In Scripture, the dynamic stories of change, almost every single one, relate to conversion and not sanctification. So when you read the story of Zacchaeus and his great change, him giving his money back was all part of his repentance. I wonder if we could could jump a few years down the road in old Zach's life and, and see if he still struggled with things that he struggled with when he first came to Christ or even before he came to Christ. I imagine so. You want an accurate look at the Christian life? Look at Peter. Not just when he was Cephas and doing dumb things all the time, but even after he was an apostle and, and spoke mightily on the day of Pentecost down the road, who had to confront him but Paul because he was being a hypocrite. Paul himself confessed his own sins. It was a process. So don't mistake the sensational stories of conversion with a picture of the Christian life which is ongoing, lasting change. Sure, we get areas of victory from time to time, but undoubtedly, what you struggle with now, you're probably going to struggle with for the rest of your life, just at lessening degrees. Congratulations. But persevere in the faith. Go into this life with your eyes wide open. Understand that God is at work in the midst of the struggle and that He is doing good in your life. Because if you are a child of God, you are no longer an object of the wrath of God. Every act of God in your life flows through the lens of His love and not His judgment. Jesus Christ bore that for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, that we would have...
the wartime mentality, Lord, that we would not trifle with sin, Lord, that we would not love triviality, Lord, that we would not be satisfied with with the world's pleasures, that we would want Christ and Christ alone above all else. Lord, we see the goal, but there are times when we just don't know how to get there. Peter shows us the way. Lord, I pray for each one of us here who is in Christ, Lord, that You would enable us to look at our lives before conversion or even the seasons of sin that we've really struggled with after conversion, Lord, that we would look at that, Lord, and we would no longer desire those sinful, temporary pleasures of the flesh. But Lord, that You would give us a holy hatred for what we once were and a deep gratitude for what we are now in Jesus our Lord. Lord, would You give us compassion for those that are outside of Christ and who struggle and who need to know Him. Lord, for, for the brothers and sisters in Christ who are, who are captured in sin right now and need help out, Lord, help us to have the appropriate word for them in their given situation. Lord, if it, needs, uh, if it calls for compassion, Lord, help us speak the truth compassionately. Lord, if there's a time for bold confrontation, help us to do it in love, recognizing, but for the grace of God, there goes we. Oh Lord, You are so good to us. I pray, Lord, that, that 2010 would, would be a year of, of significant growth within the congregation, Lord. Uh, spiritual growth, relationships, ministering together and to one another for Your glory and for the good of the Kingdom of God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.